Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're going to talk about public opinion polling and polls with Dr. Don Levy, the director of the Siena College Research Institute. Welcome, Don. Great to be with you, Dave. It's really exciting to have you. I love the work of uh, the Siena College Research Institute. It's uh, highly respected polls. It focuses on uh, New York, uh, as well as national surveys on business and politics and social issues. Uh, And uh, you also use Siena College students and students from other colleges who participate in each and every survey that's conducted. So tell us a little bit about the Siena College Research Institute and what it does. Uh, sure, fantastic. I mean, we're a, a full service, wide ranging public opinion research shop. Um, we focus on politics, economic issues, social, cultural, um, and we work for a variety of, uh, of clients as well, a lot of people in the uh, health and well-being arena. So, so we work in, in all those different dimensions. Uh, some people like to tease me. They say I have a limited attention span because uh, the other public opinion pollsters will just do politics or just do economics. Uh, we like to be working in all those different dimensions uh, at the same time because really they, they interact with one another. So, Don, the Siena College New York Times Upshot poll, uh, which you did obviously in conjunction with the New York Times, was uh, one of only six pollsters to earn an A plus rating from 538. And 538.com is obviously a respected uh, poll. Uh, polling institute uh, and poll watcher um, 538 I'm a big fan of and so that's quite an honor to get an A plus rating uh, from them in your uh, combination upshot poll with the uh, New York Times tell us about that absolutely we're very proud of that um, we've been working with the Times on a variety of different polling going back now almost eight years uh, the polls that we do with their uh, folks at upshot uh, specifically with Nate Cohn are really exciting, uh, most recently focusing on the battleground states. Uh, as most of us who track the presidential election very carefully know, um, it's going to come down to those battleground states. Uh, we've been working in six. There could be as many as another four um, that are crucial. But, you know, we are um, the polling that we do is extremely rigorous. Um, you know, we uh, we really feel as though we've opened some doors on polling. Um, so for one one thing that we do, and I'm getting in the weeds relatively quickly, um, for a while, uh, there was always a debate about uh, at what point do you switch from polling registered voters to likely voters? Because obviously it's the likely voters who are most inclined to turn up on election day and really decide the election. Uh, so the old method was that you would call someone up and say, how likely are you to vote in the election on, uh, on November 3rd? Uh, and if they said, oh, I'm not really that likely, they didn't count. Well, um, we changed that because we said anybody who's registered to vote has a greater than zero probability of showing up on Election Day. So one of the things that we do is we both compute a likelihood 
with which people are going to vote based on their previous track record. We augment that by creating a model that predicts the likelihood to vote based on certain demographics. And then in addition, we ask them a series of questions about their likelihood to vote. We put all that together and we apply that computed score on their likelihood as a weight, the same way that you weight by various demographics. So every single registered voter that we talk to has a, ver- a different computed likelihood to vote, which gets added into ultimately our formula that we use to interpret the polling data. So have you ever you know, followed up and, and were you able to determine the accuracy in which you were able to uh, say in which someone was uh, a likely voter or unlikely voter? Uh, yes. The weighting, the scaling that you do, does that have, uh, are you able to, to check that? Absolutely. We go back after the election, because uh, again, I, I need to, to say that what we're working off of um, is a list of registered voters. Um, so um, after the election, we can go back in, once that list is updated, we know whether you did or did not show up the polls. We don't know who you voted for, but we know whether right. or not you voted. And so absolutely, we validate that against our projections. Uh, and we actually come up with about a 92% uh, efficiency of our weight vis-a-vis who shows up. Clearly, there's always some exceptions. There's someone who is uh, a rock-solid voter who, for one reason or another, doesn't show up. And then there's a surprise, someone who had a very low likelihood, but um, for one reason or other, they turn out. Um, But we have been really successful with our formulaic interpretation, predicting who will and who will not turn out to vote. Well, you know, obviously all uh, the Siena College, uh, and in particular the Siena College New York Times polls are, are well-respected. Like I said, you got an A+. Plus, but all polls are not created equal. Uh, tell us, you know, what makes a good poll and a good pollster? And what should the public look for in being potentially suspicious of, 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 of a poll in general? I'm not going to pick on anybody. But yeah. uh, what makes a good poll and, and what makes a bad poll? Well, uh, you know, certainly there, there's a lot to it. You know, I'll give you a couple of things. Um, number one is uh, transparency. Um, I wouldn't trust a poll uh, that doesn't transparently tell you uh, exactly um, who they spoke with, uh, how many people they spoke with, every question that they asked, and the order in which they asked those questions. So if someone just issues a poll and they say candidate X is up by eight points over candidate uh, Y, um, you want to see the, the wording of the polls. You want to see the questions. You want to see the order in which they were asked. Um, so certainly that would that would cut out um, some pollsters right off the bat. Reputable folks, uh, you know, folks that you'll read about on 538.com all subscribe to that level of transparency. You know, the next thing you want to start looking for is with what care did they assemble uh, their sample? And you got to get down in the weeds a little bit. How representative of a sample um, did they uh, procure? Uh, so if you think about it, you take a, a state that all of us are going to look at this fall that being, say, Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania was important last time. It's going to be important this time. Uh, And and anybody who's been to Pennsylvania knows that there's differences between Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs, Pittsburgh, um, central PA. 
different types of folks live there. Um, so a good poll will quota by geographic regions and then quota within those geographic regions by age, um, by education, um, by party affiliation. So you strive to have not only a representative sample by men and women, Republicans and Democrats, for example, but you want to go into each and every identified region of a state and have an appropriate number. One of the things that all pollsters do, and, and again, I don't want to bore your, your listeners, but uh, you know, is in the fine print at the end of a poll, you'll see a margin of error. And uh, in the finer print after the margin of error, they'll tell you whether or not they weighted the poll and what they weighted it to. Um, and so you want to read that. And if that's not there, then again, I wouldn't trust the pollster. We strive to keep what's known as the design effect, the degree to which we had to weight the respondents to make them look like um, the representative population as low as possible. So you're looking for that. You're looking for that degree of rigor that I'm quickly describing uh, in order to identify a a solid, reputable pollster. Now, let's talk about the, you mentioned Pennsylvania. You, you recently did with the New York Times a uh, in-depth poll of six key battle, battleground states uh, in the uh, United States for the presidential election between uh, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. Uh, you looked at uh, Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Um Certainly anybody that wins, you know, all uh, six of those uh, is likely to, to get the presidency because they're swing states. Um, I think uh, for Joe Biden, at least, if you were able to hold on to the states won by Hillary Clinton uh, four, uh, four years ago and, and won a combination of three of those six, um, he would have an excellent chance of winning. Uh, what were your findings in those uh, in those six swing states that you looked at? Well, when we looked at those six states um, at at the time that we looked at them in in June, and we'll certainly be back looking at those as the election nears. Um, Joe Biden had a um, a very sizable lead across these six battleground states uh, in total and across each and every one. Uh, when we asked voters, um, well, where do they stand on the issues? Who do they trust more? Uh, certainly, um, I know Biden was trusted to do a better job by the voters in those swing states uh, on every single issue, with the exception really of one. And and the one issue where the, the president was seen by voters in those states as uh, potentially doing a better job was on the economy. Now, some of the polls that have come out since ours, we've seen that number even start to erode. Um, But there was no real equivocation amongst the voters. Um, There is a clear, at this point, uh, likelihood that, um, you know, Joe Biden will carry those states. Uh, And what we saw was movement um, within some of the groups of people that had uh, shifted towards President Trump in the 216 election, um, that being white suburban women, uh, less than college educated, both men and women. So we saw dramatic movement away from President Trump towards former Vice President Biden across each and every one of those states um, on, uh, you know, amongst those groups. It's a long time still to the election. Things change. Um, but at this point, and clearly um, our polling has been uh, validated as each and every one of my colleagues continues to release polls as we move through the summer, 
Um, there's no equivocation. It's very clear that right now um, Biden leads Trump in those swing states. Yeah, and let's talk about those swing states a little bit more. I, I think each of those states were uh, were won by Trump in, in 2016. Yes, yes. Um, and, and those were states that he won, I mean, relatively close, but he won those states, and that was what propelled him to winning the Electoral College. In each of those states, though, now uh, Joe Biden is up by between 6 and 11 percentage points in states that Trump previously won. These aren't historically, you know, solid uh, blue states. These are states that Trump won in 2016 that now Joe Biden is up um, between six and, and, you know, over 10 points in some instances. Um, It would seem to me as though, you know, that would be an awfully tough uh, turnaround or or sharp turnaround for uh, candidate to to have for for all six of those to change oh absolutely um first thing i'll say is though when we uh and many of the folks who are polling right now are still polling registered voters um before i talked a little bit about likely voters um we'll make that change in our next polling um but when we when we pulled it apart we said well is there any difference across these uh, six states um, when we uh, try to ratchet down and identify the likeliest of voters, and it gets a little bit closer. Um, President Trump picks up between uh, two and four points uh, if you ratchet down to the likeliest of voters. Uh, still, um, it, it's, it, there's no argument that at this point, it looks like the president has a very um, tall hill to climb. And you say, well, well, why? What's the difference between 2016 and today? You know, and one of the things, there's so many, but one of the things I'll point out, it seems a long time ago when we were discussing um, attitudes towards Hillary Clinton, attitudes towards Donald Trump. Um, you know, when we polled in 2016, what we found was that there were significantly large groups, close to 40% in each case who said, you know, I'll vote for her. There's not a chance in the world that I'll vote for him and vice versa. So there were um, both candidates had extremely um, loyal followings and extremely vociferous opposition. These were two candidates that had extremely high negatives. Um, And there were many people um, who maybe chose Donald Trump. He was the new kid on the block. He was somebody different. Um, You know, his own expression was, hey, what do you got to lose? Um, It's different today. First of all, Joe Biden does not have the negatives that Hillary Clinton had in 2016. The negatives on Joe Biden, you know, is he is he too old? Um, Is he you know, have we seen this before? Um, But there was tremendous animosity for Hillary Clinton, which we do not see that animosity towards Joe Biden. And if you flip that around, Donald Trump is uh, at this point running on record. You either like his record or you do not like his record. So the expression of, hey, what do you got to lose um, doesn't really even make sense at this point. You know exactly how Donald Trump is as president. And in many ways, the the election is a referendum on his presidency. Some people have argued, and you could argue, um, that this is not essentially a Biden versus Trump. This is a Trump yes, a Trump no election. And at this point, um, Trump no is um, is leading against Trump yes. 
Yeah, because we know exactly what we have to lose. Uh, we've lost, uh, the, you know, the economy. We've lost our uh, health. Um, you know, you and I are talking remotely today, or you know, you're just across the you're just across the road at Siena College. I'd love to hopefully have you uh, in the studio at some point, but we can't. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was. You know, you broke those, the categories down in those swing states. And uh, Joe Biden was was doing better than Hillary in, in Hillary Clinton from 2016 in just about every category, including women voters. So uh, in those states that you polled, Hillary won by about 8% women voters. If I'm reading your numbers right, Joe Biden is up by about 19% amongst women voters. Is that, is that correct? And, yeah, and, yeah. and talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's extremely dramatic. Um, you know, women tend to veer towards the Democratic candidates, you know, over the past number of elections. Um, but there was a, a core of, um, uh, of predominantly white, uh, in many cases, less than college educated women who were um, who did vote um, for uh, President Trump in the last election. And that's where we've seen the most dramatic movement. Another group that I'll call attention to that are really going to have a great say on the next election is African-American women. Um, Now, that is a group of people who overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. You would expect that they will vote overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. But it's not just a question of whether they vote or not. It's a question with what intensity, to what degree are they going to turn out? And if that turnout is heightened uh, amongst um, women who have migrated, less than college educated white women, in some cases suburban white women, from Trump to Biden. But at the same time, if um, African American women turn out uh, in potentially record numbers and simultaneously encourage African American men to show up at rates greater than they have, most especially in the last election in places like Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, um, then um, these numbers that we're seeing right now of a um, plus 10 to plus 14 um, Biden lead nationally and, you know, leads close to that in these states, um, that's what's going to happen on Election Day. Yeah, so you know we're talking about double digit, a double digit lead nationally, uh, right now, uh, and in the summer, and of course that can things can change. Uh, that the people aren't voting today. We're not we're not voting till November, so there's time to change. But you know, in your um, understanding of of presidential polling. Um, wouldn't it take a real kind of cataclysmic event to make up uh, 10 plus points in a national poll? Oh, it absolutely would. Um, it's not um, unparalleled. People go back to Dukakis. Uh, you know, there was a point at which um, John McCain surged in the polls and, and had a lead that um, subsequently evaporated. Um, small lead, though. And that was, that was a small know, lead. Small yes. lead. Small lead. Um, you know, so this level of lead in a um, in a normal election um, would be almost insurmountable. However, um, you know we have an election that's going to be affected by the conditions in which we live, just like everything else is affected by the conditions in which we live. We do not know what turnout is going to be. We do not know um, how um, absentee slash mail in voting uh, is going to work. Whether it's going to be um, 
uh, appropriately counted in each and every uh, voting precinct across the United States or these swing states. Uh, so there's a great deal of unknowns. On the policy side, um, clearly we've seen um, the president's ratings on his handling of the coronavirus um, have brought his numbers down uh, from where they were. Um, if um, somehow a significant change happens between now and Election Day, uh, if there's a vaccine, uh, if, if every kid across America goes back to school successfully, if every college kid you know, starts returning and uh, the president can say, see, um, you know, I was right. Um, that could have a change because women voters, as you know, tend I think to regardless, uh, regardless of what happens, he's going to say, see, I was right. He doesn't. Right. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he said this was all going to this was going to burn up in, in April uh, with warm weather like magic. Uh, uh, so, uh, I, you know, I I seriously doubt that we're going to see see something miraculous. I certainly hope that we we do. But um, if, you know, the next four months or anything like the last four months, uh, it's not going to be a plus for the incumbent. Right. I, I think that um, if indeed um, we continue to see uh, COVID-19 uh, leading to the, um, uh, the deaths of as many Americans as we're seeing, if we are still have our lives changed to the degree that, that they've been changed, um, and, and the fact that right now Americans do not feel, a majority of Americans do not feel that the president is doing a good job on the coronavirus. So right. that and that alone would be enough to sway a quote-unquote normal election. I mean, we haven't touched on the issue of uh, racism, discrimination, um, policing, um, which has also dramatically impacted um, the, the lives of Americans, the thinking of virtually every voter. And that's another issue that public opinion is saying that they feel as though uh, the president is not representative of the opinion of the majority of Americans. Right. Now, you've done some you've done some polling on some of these uh, criminal justice uh, and social justice issues uh, here in New York. Uh, and, and what were your findings uh, with respect to those issues uh, amongst uh uh, New York citizens. Well, we've seen a uh, really dramatic change because we've been polling. In fact, every year um, uh, we release a poll on Martin Luther King Day, and we've asked some of the same questions again and again. Um, and, and we've asked a question, for example, on uh, whether New Yorkers, and we've done this question now in some of the swing states, um, to what degree do you think that systemic racism um, is a problem? in your area, your state, in this country. Uh, and uh, over the past several months, we've seen that that move by almost 20 points. So now we see uh, about two thirds of New Yorkers saying um, that they think systemic racism is a very serious problem um, here in the state of New York. And we see similar numbers in these other swing states. Now you juxtapose that to listening to um, you know, some feedback coming from uh, the president's inner circle uh, where some of his advisors have questioned whether that term systemic racism even makes sense or not. Um, so we're, you know, New Yorkers are seeing that um, and recognizing uh, that that is an issue that faces us as a country. And in a sense that it's about time 
um, we address it. Um, we also see that, you know, relative to the protests that um, resulted from the killing of George Floyd, um, that despite the fact that uh, in our polls, people can uh, say that they condemn violence, but overwhelmingly, they support the underlying position of the protesters. Um, so there is, it is great widespread um, support. Some would say an awakening of um, a level of discrimination that has been um, continuing to exist. If you're uh, white and affluent, maybe below the surface, if you're black or brown, very much in your face um, for many, many years, and many Americans now are saying, it's time that we do something. Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing the protesters are not uh, what people would consider to be them. The, pro- the protesters are, are us. Uh, it's not just young people. It's not just a particular, you know, minority or special interest group. It's, you know, it's old people. It's all colors, all races um, are involved in the protests. For the most part, peaceful protests, not not. Uh, 100% for, for the most part. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that there's a tremendous amount of uh, support for the protesters because that it's coming from this, the citizenship. So we're left with a situation in which uh, Americans in the swing state think that Joe Biden will do a better job in addressing the coronavirus. I think Joe Biden will do a better job in addressing issues of um, discrimination, racism, um, addressing maybe uh, some new ideas on on policing. Uh, And these two issues are things that people, every single American is talking about virtually every single day. If they watch any news, they're consuming information about it every single day. So it really leaves us with the economy, your pocketbook. Um, So uh, if you think that um, the president is doing a better job on the economy, uh, if if what you think is the economy is the recovery that the stock market has had over the past several months, um, if you're afraid that the election of of Joe Biden will adversely affect you economically, um, is that enough for you to continue to support the president? And so, uh, based upon that polling, uh, and I, I and this is not a, a, a partisan question, and uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if if based upon the polling that you've seen, if you were to give advice, let's say to the president, uh, to to try to turn his poll numbers around, what kind of advice would you give him uh, on things he should focus on? I mean, besides, obviously, uh, coming up with a a cure for this COVID, um, and I'm not going to get into his, you know, his personal traits, but uh, what kind of issues do you think would be conducive for the president to, to try to pound home? Well, certainly, um, the president has not called me. Uh, I, I <laughs> he should. I don't advise. Well, he knows me. everything. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to call you. And I notice that you're one of your partners is the the New York Times. So obviously, all your polling is fake. Uh, right. right. So, but but putting that aside, um, 
based upon the, these fake polls that you've had, uh, what kind of, uh, what would you recommend? Well, certainly, uh, if, if, you, if you break down into a strategic outlook, you know, and uh, the president needs to win, um, if not all six of those battleground states, probably needs to win five out of six. You know, his strategy was to widen the field to include perhaps uh, Minnesota, you know, perhaps the fight in New Mexico or Colorado. Um, at this point, there's no uh, information that he's doing better there. So my advice to him, if I was trying to help him win, is he's got to go in, he's got to figure out how do you re-win those states. Um, and I don't see how he can do that um, without turning around people's level of confidence in him relative to uh, their health, their safety, um, relative to um, addressing the systemic racism that has been exposed, while at the same time seeking to verify that he is indeed, or his party is indeed, um, the better party uh, capable of running an economy. Um, you know, the best thing that could happen for him is something that neither you nor I think is going to happen, that being that somehow the virus goes away and we forget about um, policing issues and go back to only caring about, um, you know, whether Social Security is going to be there for us, you know, when we're ready. Um, that's yeah, what yeah I sincerely hope that the, the virus is going to go away. I... I think it's going to be awfully hard to forget what we've been through over the last six months. Um, that's that's not a blip. Uh, so let me ask you this. Closer to home, you've done some polling about New York issues and, and Governor Cuomo. Um, how's he situated with uh, New York's voters, Governor Cuomo? Governor Cuomo has done uh, very well. Um, over this uh, recent period of time. And um, we've seen his numbers really skyrocket from where they were. He was sort of at a break-even level among, you know, in, uh, within New York on his uh, job approval, uh, on his favorability. And we've seen those numbers go up appreciably. What, how good of a job is he doing? And really what we're tracing that to is um, the way he stood up and conducted these um, live um, press conferences every single day um, during the uh, the pandemic, and how he he sat there, he took every question, um, and he you know he will admit he will admit uh, not readily, but he will admit that he made some bad calls. Um, you know, he didn't handle perhaps the um, uh, nursing homes and moving people into nursing homes um, appropriately. But he stood up there. He took the advice of experts. Um, he took. Uh, he made hard decisions in terms of closing down the state, uh, restricting people's activity in order to keep New Yorkers safe. And um, the New Yorkers have responded to it. You, you obviously you hear people in New York saying, "Well, you know, I wish I could go to a restaurant. Well, I wish I could go to a ball game. You know, when's you know why is Cuomo keeping people from every state out of New York?" But he has stood up. And he has, you know, worked hard to protect New Yorkers. And I think New Yorkers have responded to that. And consequently, his numbers have, in effect, skyrocketed. Yeah. What's his favorable favorability ratings uh, now around? Yeah. You know, overall, he's, he's running, you know, close to 70, 75 percent. His job performance, you know, you know, the toy with 80 percent for a little while. That's unheard of. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had numbers similar. And we haven't talked about him yet. To, uh, to Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, who uh, for a little while was um, the most trusted um, national figure. And uh, the governor of, of New York was getting numbers very similar to Tony Fauci. 
Right. I think when we saw those daily press conferences between uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, the president in Washington, there was such a contrast of, of transparency and a contrast of competence uh, that was really glaring that I don't think uh, our nation uh, had seen uh, on a daily basis, you know, in the past. And it was you know, there was a clear difference between leadership styles. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's um, no easy task, uh, you know, to <laughs> speak, you know, uh, to the public on a, on a daily basis, you know, and, and I'm often involved in, in talks like this. This is not even something as, you know, casual as the conversation that we're now having takes preparation, takes thought, um, and to stand up in front of the state of New York or the, or the United States, where every single word you say matters, um, is is really demanding, really difficult. And, and I think that uh, certainly the governor of our state, agree with them or disagree with them on many issues, um, really did a fantastic job. And the people of New York saw that. Well, uh, Dr. Levy, you do a fantastic job as well. Uh, I've been trying to get you with some gotcha questions, and you foiled me at every turn. Um, the work that you do for uh, the Siena College Research Institute is excellent. Uh, it is, uh, again, one of the most respected polls in the nation. We are very honored to have you with us. I'd like to, you know, maybe hopefully have you back after the election. We can talk about all the things you got wrong uh, and, uh, and why. Uh, we have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can share with our listeners, especially during this time of quarantine, uh, something that helps get you through uh, the day. Well, I, again, maybe I'm a little crazy, but uh, for the past week to relax before I, I managed to close my eyes and stop seeing spreadsheets in, in my brain for a few minutes, I've been reading Eric Larson's uh, book on uh, Churchill and Churchill's family, most especially it focuses on day-to-day -day Churchill's life and the lives of those closest to him during the bombing of London. And, uh, and certainly, you know, any day that I think, well, I had a tough day today, or life is, is, is like, how can I get through another couple days like this? And I pick that up and I read it, and it's just miraculous. You know, the descriptions of, of Churchill, you know, walking on the balcony on 10 Downing Street and looking up and watching, you know, as, as planes flew over London and bombs were falling and elements of the city were burning. And it was up to him. And, you know, you talk about courage, you talk about, you know, leading, whether it's New York, the United States, or in, or in his case, um, really the free world. And it was his confidence, his courage, his ability um, to rally the people that, you know, allowed that morale to stay there. I mean, it's, it's almost inconceivable. And then, you know, the book goes through stories of individual people who are out just doing something as simple as going to a club, you know, and dancing on a Saturday night. And they got unlucky, and the bomb fell and blew up that club. And the people of London, and really of, of most of England, um, lived through that. Um, and, and because of their steadfastness, and most especially Churchill's, um, it was really a turning point in the war. History would have been different without them. 
Yeah, well, Eric Larson, of course, is a tremendous author. Um, Churchill is a tremendous historical figure. Uh, the book sounds terribly interesting and I think relevant to what we're going through. I mean, we're not getting bombed, but uh, just about everything else. Uh, and, you know, we're afraid to go out to the, to the bars and we're, you know, there, there's peril uh, just about everywhere. You know, Churchill is a fascinating figure. Uh, Interesting from a polling perspective, he, he wasn't always very popular. Uh, he was, I mean, we look back now at him as, you know, a great leader, but, um, it, you know, his numbers were, were, weren't always great. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one year into his being prime minister, um, there, were, uh, there was a move afoot to uh, have a vote of confidence in, in parliament. Uh, you know, there were folks there were folks in England who were saying maybe we should capitulate to the Germans and just stop this bombing at all costs. And, and right. he weathered through it. Um, you know, one thing I'm a sociologist by training. And one of the things that we look at, I don't know if you've ever read uh, C. Wright Mills, The Sociological Imagination, you know, but we look at the intersection of history with biography. And that's where sociology lives. And that's true for every one of us. You know, so this is one of those historic times that intersects with every one of our biographies. And so each of us, I think, are challenged a little bit. How are we affected by and responding to COVID? How are we um, interacting with the death of, of George Floyd? What, what is each one of us doing as history moves through our biography? Certainly, you know, Churchill demonstrated it, but to me, it, it, it raises that question with me each evening when I, you know, get ready to get into, into bed and have a you know, a little relaxation, you know. I think I when, you're reading, when you're reading about Churchill, I think you have to have a little scotch uh, yeah. on the side. Uh, well, I've been known to do that. You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't think I could have kept his pace for what people say. But, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, it, it, brings, it brings to mind um, the work that each of us does, you know, how our, um, how our biography intersects with the history that we're living in. Well, Don Levy, thank you for sharing your, your time with us. Uh, fascinating work. Uh, we appreciate the work you do, and we appreciate you being with us here on Miranda Warnings. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.